Chapter Fifteen, Part Three of Twenty Years of the Republic, eighteen eighty five to nineteen hundred five, by Harry Thurston Peck. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. President Roosevelt, Part Three. Foreign observers had said that the United States now possessed the hegemony of the entire Western Hemisphere. In nineteen hundred three, a series of events occurred which emphasized the truth of this assertion for half a century the project of uniting the atlantic and pacific oceans by a ship canal across the central american isthmus had received the attention of great britain france and the united states such a canal would decrease the distance by sea from new york to san francisco by some eight thousand five hundred miles and from new york to australia by nearly four thousand miles the so-called clayton bulwer treaty between the united states and great britain signed in eighteen fifty had contemplated the opening of such a canal from time to time the subject had been revived and in eighteen seventy two expeditions had reported upon the subject in eighteen eighty one a french company had been organized to cut the isthmus of panama and the carrying out of the plan was entrusted to m ferdinand de lesseps who had successfully united the red sea with the mediterranean the attempt however resulted in an engineering failure and in a great financial scandal for out of the seven hundred million francs subscribed only about ninety million francs were actually expended upon the engineering works the rest having been squandered in bribery or lost through peculation in the united states the best scientific opinion had favored a canal through nicaragua and this route was examined by a commission appointed in eighteen ninety seven meanwhile the french project had collapsed eighteen eighty nine and the french company had offered to sell its rights to the united states various commissions made surveys and reports but finally on january twenty nineteen hundred two president roosevelt sent to congress a message recommending the construction of a canal at panama and the purchase of the french rights for forty million dollars congress responded by appropriating one hundred seventy million dollars for the realization of the plan and in case it were not possible to secure the consent of the united states of columbia directed the president to have the canal constructed by the nicaragua route at a cost not to exceed one hundred eighty million dollars a treaty was then negotiated between secretary hay and the colombian minister signor Aran, by which colombia was to grant the desired privilege in return for the sum of ten million dollars to be paid outright and an annual rental of two hundred fifty thousand dollars this treaty was ratified by the united states senate in extra session march seventeenth nineteen hundred three and then went to the senate of columbia that body strangely enough rejected the treaty by a unanimous vote august seventeenth the government of columbia let it be known a little later that a new treaty would be ratified if the united states would pay the sum of twenty five million dollars instead of the ten million dollars provided for in the hay aaron agreement it was obvious that colombia was holding up the north american republic and that the whole question turned upon the payment of money at this juncture the state of panama incensed by the sacrifice of its commercial interests seceded from colombia and established a provisional government of its own appealing to the united states for recognition president roosevelt within three days acknowledged the independence of the republic of panama physical conditions prevented colombia from sending troops to panama by land to coerce the seceding state and american vessels of war at once appeared in central american waters and began to cruise up and down the coast marines were landed on the isthmus and the colombian government was informed that the united states would permit no fighting there france and england almost at once gave their recognition to the new republic 
columbia then when it was too late offered every possible concession but the offer was rejected m bunoverilla a franco-spanish engineer was by cable accredited as panama's representative at washington and on november eighteenth he and secretary hay signed a treaty by which the republic of panama granted to the united states the privilege of constructing a canal in return for ten million dollars and a guarantee of panama's independence to the united states was also given control of a belt of land ten miles wide through which the canal was to be cut the provisional government of panama ratified this treaty on december second and it was approved by the united states senate note twenty eight page seven hundred two on february twenty third nineteen hundred four only fourteen votes being cast against it public opinion favored the action of the government though with some reservations in the presence of a fait accompli there was no possibility of retreat moreover the mercenary conduct of the colombians had deprived them of much of the sympathy which might otherwise have been given to them it was proved also that the united states had in no way instigated the revolt of panama a state which had revolted before and which had for years been hostile to the central government finally the gain to the whole world from the construction of a canal across the isthmus was obvious to all nevertheless the transaction was not one of which americans could be proud it violated the principles of international comity and morality the alleged baseness of the colombian senate did not justify the spoliation of colombia by a professedly friendly power the indecent haste with which panama's independence had been recognized was repugnant to many americans when the president received the new panamanian minister he very unwisely compared his own recognition of panama to president monroe's recognition of the south american states after their revolt from spain yet he must have known that president monroe took that step only after waiting more years than president roosevelt had waited days it was plain too that the president had acted toward a feeble state like colombia as he would not have dared to act toward a great and warlike power his conduct in this affair therefore savoured too strongly of bullying to be admirable morally the acquisition of the canal zone was as reprehensible as the partition of poland and it was effected with every possible circumstance that could give offence the new york evening post expressed though rather infelicitously a widespread feeling when it remarked note twenty nine page seven hundred four the same result could have been reached with some regard for appearances the booty could have been bagged just the same yet the burglar could have looked to the casual eye more like a church member the wrong involved in this affair was destined to bring in part its own revenge president roosevelt in his sanguine off-hand way declared that the canal must be commenced at once that he would begin immediately to make the dirt fly he could not then foresee the long delays the shocking waste the crass incompetence and the noisome scandals that were to dog and defer the work upon which he had entered with so light a heart here as oftentimes before in his career he displayed the hopeful inexperience of an amateur and that which he lightly fancied the achievement of a few years dragged wearily along until even the most optimistic of americans perceived that it was destined to remain the despair of distant decades note thirty page seven hundred four the president however was satisfied with the result of his action and proceeded to display his self-complacency in a piece of phrase-making which became famous his notion of a foreign policy he said was to speak softly but to carry a big stick what really gave him serious anxiety at this time was the question of his election in nineteen hundred four 
or rather the question as to whether his own party would nominate him for the presidency there were good reasons for his doubt on april ninth nineteen hundred three the suit of attorney-general knox for the dissolution of the northern securities merger had been decided in favour of the government and against the railway magnates note thirty one page seven hundred five a decree ordering the dissolution of the merger was filed in accordance with this decision the independent press of the country rejoiced at so effective a check to the march of monopoly thus the portland oregonian declared it is a blow at anarchy disregard and violation of law come to the same thing whether held at the corner of broad and wall streets in private palace cars and along fifth avenue or by the ragged beggar stealing a loaf from a baker's wagon the cincinnati times star remarked wall street with its short-sighted standpoint of pecuniary gain in the immediate future may regard the northern securities decision as a great evil those americans who are more deeply and unselfishly interested in the industrial and political future of their country however can scarcely fail to take a diametrically opposite position and regard the decision as fraught with much of practical benefit and promise for the future of the republic but of course the decision of the court enraged the representatives of capital as much as it alarmed them it renewed their purpose to prevent the nomination of mr roosevelt beginning with the early autumn of nineteen hundred three all their insidious agencies were set to work to discredit him and to make his nomination seem impossible the country beheld a wonderful exhibition of the power of this third estate its newspapers were filled with studied sneers with slanderous hints and with expressions of veiled contempt chief among the condottieri of this veiled opposition was the new york sun which since the death of mr dana in eighteen ninety seven had suffered various vicissitudes but which was now believed to be controlled by mr pierpont morgan the sun displayed an ingenuity and a malice worthy of the great editor who was gone it quoted with relish an offensive phrase which described the friends of mr roosevelt as bugs on the white house doormat it ridiculed his military record and with solemn irony strove to sap the foundations of his popularity note thirty two page seven hundred six at first the real drift of all this criticism was not apparent but the secret was let out in an editorial which the sun published on december fourteenth nineteen hundred three in commenting on the election in ohio which had resulted in a great republican majority quoth the sun we see the honourable marcus a hanna crowned with the laurels of that mighty november majority victorious as he is the bugs on the white house door mat to use a coarse phrase worthy of that low and practical view of politics that obtains among the buckeyes are biting him sharply on the other hand the mighty majority is crowding in on him seeking to force him away from the state to which he has bound himself a monument of self-denial there is every indication that at the present time senator hannah is holding himself in restraint but only showing the stoicism of a martyr at the stake his patience is remarkable his endurance marvellous yet the air around him is charged with electricity the pie counter brigade or sycophants for office and the bugs on the white house doormat as the members of roosevelt's immediate circle at washington are known have been assiduously at work nibbling and gnawing at his ankles never a day goes by but he must suppress anger that would cause most men to break loose and hurl defiance at the headsman this situation must be distressing not so much perhaps to the martyr himself as to one deeply interested soul the object of this drama of abnegation between the bugs and the majority will the stake hold 
from this moment mr hannah was everywhere regarded as a rival of mr roosevelt for the republican nomination the movement in his favor was carried on all over the country with infinite skill and through all the channels of the business world bankers told their customers that a continuance of mr roosevelt in office would lead to hard times and would compel a curtailment of discounts manufacturers and great business houses let it be known to their employees that their prosperity in the future was imperiled by the unsafe man in the white house this feeling spread from man to man until in january nineteen hundred four it really seemed as though the conspiracy would be successful a knowledge of these facts seriously disturbed the president he frankly sought a nomination and was not ashamed to say so he had enjoyed the experiences of his office with a keen relish often writing to his friends and dictating his letters to a stenographer he would speak of the burdens of the presidency yet before the letter was sent he sometimes scrawled with his own hand at the bottom of the page the words but i like it he was tired of having it said that he was only an accidental president he wished such an endorsement of his policies and of himself as an election by the people would imply his anxiety was very obvious mr hannah's popularity gave him many perplexing hours mr hannah himself once remarked laughingly whenever i call at the white house the president thinks it's necessary to swear me in again whether the senator was seriously hoping for his own election it is difficult to say it is certain however that he began to seek the favor of the labor element which had long been hostile to him he helped organize the national civic federation and became its president he also set his business affairs in order withdrawing from various enterprises in which he had been interested thereby making it possible to assume any new duty which might be imposed upon him for the moment the party was divided and the president seemed to be daily losing ground a sudden change in the aspect of affairs was caused by mr hannah's death in february nineteen hundred four without him the opposition within the party had no head dislike of mr roosevelt among the capitalists had not decreased yet there was no one available to oppose him then ensued a period of uncertainty as was said by a republican adversary of the president everybody is for roosevelt but nobody wants him yet this remark was utterly untrue the country was decidedly for mr roosevelt and it also wanted him now that mr hannah was removed there came a great surge of favor which in a month or two gave to the president the absolute mastery of his party when the republican convention met at chicago on june twenty first it met as a mere machine to register the presidential wishes every speech had been submitted to him and had been revised by him the platform was practically of his own composition the great hall of the coliseum which covered five acres of ground contained a body of delegates who felt that there could be no interest in a gathering where no initiative was allowed enthusiasm was lacking and one cynical delegate remarked the only live thing about the convention to-day was the picture of the dead hannah on the second day the platform was read and adopted it contained in essence little more than formal endorsement of the administration on the third day mr roosevelt was formally nominated by ex-governor frank s black of new york who succeeded in rousing the convention for the first time to something like enthusiasm his speech was in fact a superb piece of rhetoric of which at least one passage may be quoted here there is no regret so keen in man or country as that which follows an opportunity unembraced fortune soars with high and rapid wing and whosoever brings it down must shoot with accuracy and speed 
only the man with steady eye and nerve and the courage to pull the trigger brings the largest opportunities to the ground he does not always listen while all the sages speak but every nightfall beholds some record which if not complete has been at least pursued with conscience and intrepid resolution the fate of nations is still decided by their wars you may talk of orderly tribunals and learned referees you may sing in your schools the gentle praises of the quiet life you may strike from your books the last note of every martial anthem and yet out in the smoke and thunder will always be the tramp of horses and the silent rigid upturned face men may prophesy and women pray but peace will come here to abide forever on this earth only when the dreams of childhood are the accepted charts to guide the destinies of men note thirty three page seven hundred nine mr roosevelt was nominated by acclamation and mr charles w fairbanks of indiana was made his associate as a candidate for the vice-presidency mr fairbanks was a gentleman of conservative views whose rather cold and formal manners presently gained for him the popular nickname of icebanks the convention adjourned with as little enthusiasm as had marked its gathering yet in spite of this unprecedented absence of emotion or perhaps because of it there was something grimly suggestive and impressive about the whole affair one seemed to see here no shouting mob of volunteers but rather an army highly organized and disciplined trained to obey implicitly the orders of a single chief and with the prestige of past victory upon its banners the soldiers in the ranks might have their private hesitancies and dislikes but these were not to count when in the presence of the enemy nor to alter however slightly an unflinching determination to win the coming battle much keener interest was felt in the action of the democratic convention which had been called for july sixth in st louis the democracy was in a mood to revert to its earlier conservatism rather than to experience once more with the policies of mr bryan this conservatism was the more clearly indicated because radicalism had now been approved by the republicans and was embodied in the personality of their chief hence the name most often heard as that of the possible democratic candidate was the name of alton b parker chief judge of the new york court of appeals judge parker had been bred to the profession of the law and his first thought in public life was of rule and precedent he had all the jurist's dread of innovation and while his courage was undoubted it was always manifested in a quiet fashion he recalled the american public men of other days the adamses the jays and the marshals statesmen and jurists who gave form and definite cohesion to the federal government in its early years personally he had the human qualities in abundant measure the kindliness and courtesy of one who is always genuine and sincere with just a touch of that elusive rusticity which carries a wholesome suggestion of a purely natural environment as the weeks passed on judge parker seemed more and more likely to receive the democratic nomination his chief rival was mr william randolph hearst of new york mr hearst was a young man the son of senator hearst of california and he had inherited from his father a large fortune with which he had established newspapers of a sensational character in new york in boston in chicago in san francisco and in los angeles mr hearst was more radical even than mr bryan he was a state socialist who had formerly advocated free silver and in his newspapers had never wearied of denouncing the abuses of capitalism 
he was seriously regarded in many portions of the country as a great tribune of the people who would if he had the power destroy the lawless corporations give over the railways and the telegraphs to the government and in general bring about a sort of socialistic millennium this belief and an abundant use of money in his preliminary canvass with perhaps the secret support of mr bryan secured for mr hurst not only delegations from several of the so-called silver states but those of such great commonwealths as illinois iowa and california when the convention met it was obviously dominated by the conservative element mr cleveland's name was received with thunders of applause and it was said that now at last the democracy would show itself to be both safe and sane the first day was devoted to speech-making but on the second day the convention displayed its temper in a test vote as to the seating of certain illinois delegates mr bryan advocated their admission but by a vote of six hundred forty seven to two hundred ninety nine his proposal was defeated and he left the hall in a state of evident dejection nevertheless in committee he was able by the force of his personality to exclude from the platform any reference to the money question on the evening of july eighth the candidates were put in nomination and judge parker received six hundred fifty eight ballots as against the two hundred four that were cast for mr hurst men wondered however in what light the judge would view a nomination given him after the adoption of a platform so negative in character they had not long to wait on the next day a telegram was received and read of which the text was as follows i regard the gold standard as firmly and irrevocably established and shall act accordingly if the action of the convention to-day shall be ratified by the people as the platform is silent on the subject my views should be made known to the convention and if they prove to be unsatisfactory to the majority i request you to decline the nomination for me at once so that another may be nominated before adjournment alton b parker to this telegram after a hasty consultation among the leaders a reply was sent in these words the platform adopted by this convention is silent on the question of the monetary standard because it is not regarded by us as a possible issue in this campaign and only campaign issues were mentioned in the platform therefore there is nothing in the views expressed by you in the telegram just received which would preclude a man entertaining them from accepting a nomination on said platform the terms of this reply were bitterly assailed by mr bryan who rose from a sick-bed pale and shaking with fever to utter a last plea for the cause with which his name was linked his passionate eloquence never was more splendid than in this hour of momentary defeat he thrilled all who heard him yet he failed to shake the set purpose of the majority the convention then adjourned after nominating for the vice-presidency mr henry g davis of west virginia a wealthy octogenarian the most conservative democrats all over the country lauded the courage of their chief candidate the supporters of mr bryan however and the friends of mr hurst were thoroughly discontented and throughout the campaign which followed they exhibited not only apathy but unfriendliness mr bryan himself though deeply disappointed displayed unshaken loyalty to his party's choice at first it seemed as though the conservative elements of the country might be rallied to judge parker's support mr cleveland emerged from his seclusion to speak in behalf of his party's candidate the moneyed interests hesitated for a few weeks but in the end they accepted mr roosevelt in the belief that he was certain to be elected and that while they might not be able to control his policies they could at least succeed in blocking them or in accomplishing their defeat moreover some of the men who were most conspicuous in their advocacy of judge parker's election failed to inspire general confidence 
again judge parker's utterances were too sedate and too conservative for a people which had grown accustomed to more stirring words moreover mr roosevelt was fortunate in having mr john hay as his chief cabinet adviser many conservative republicans were wont to remark well after all a vote for roosevelt is really a vote for hay as the summer advanced the tide set in with increasing force in favor of the president and the democrats were obviously losing ground one thing alone gave a shock to the moral sense of the country at the head of the republican national committee was placed mr george b cortelyou who had resigned a seat in the cabinet to act as campaign manager it was intimated that in case the president should be elected mr cortelyou would be made postmaster-general there was a certain impropriety in all this mr cortelyou had been secretary of commerce and labor and in that office he had learned the secrets of the great corporations his demands upon them for pecuniary contributions would therefore be especially effective while the chance of his being the future head of the post-office department made every postmaster in the country a political agent through dread of possible removal judge parker called attention to these circumstances in a speech to which the president wrote a reply couched in hot words of anger and ending with the following notable passage the statements made by mr parker are unqualifiedly and atrociously false as mr cortelyou has said to me more than once during this campaign if elected i shall go into the presidency unhampered by any pledge promise or understanding of any kind sort or description save my promise made openly to the american people that so far as in my power lies i shall see to it that every man has a square deal no less and no more this for the moment silenced public criticism of course no one had supposed that mr roosevelt was personally aware of any bargaining indeed it was not necessary to assume that any open or explicit bargaining had been made but in the following year it became known that large sums had been improperly if not dishonestly paid into the republican campaign fund by the great insurance companies of new york and that in one instance the company's books had been falsified to conceal the evidence of this illegal use of a trust fund it was plain that such contributions would hardly have been made without a confident expectation of receiving valuable favors in return judge parker's charges were therefore in essence justified at the election however mr roosevelt was so overwhelmingly successful as to make the results certain within two hours after the polls had closed in the popular vote he had a majority of nearly two million while in the electoral college he had three hundred thirty-six votes as against one hundred forty given to judge parker yet when analyzed it was apparent that his great success was due largely to the defection at the polls of the hearst and bryan voters the total number of ballots cast in the country was less by nearly half a million than those which had been cast in nineteen hundred in spite of the growth in population it was not then so much an increase in the republican vote as a decrease in the democratic that brought about a result which on the face of it seemed cataclysmic no sooner had the news of his success been carried to the president than he gave out a written statement from the white house to the effect that under no circumstances would he be a candidate for another nomination note thirty four page seven fifteen president roosevelt entered upon his second term in march nineteen hundred five under happy auspices and with a great majority of his own party in control of congress what he might actually do thereafter was uncertain how far his efforts in behalf of honesty and equal justice might be effectual in the face of sinister and reactionary influences none could say 
but he at least by speech and act committed the powerful organization of which he was the head to a new and truer policy and one consistent with the ideals of its founders a policy from which thereafter it would be not only difficult but base to swerve End of chapter 15